0: Welcome to Lament Configuration, the podcast where we talk about shit that makes us sad or makes us feel other ways that we want to talk about how we feel. I'm Julia Graffaire. I'm a graphic novelist and with me is my
1: co-host. Gretchen Felker-Martin. I'm a film critic and horror author.
0: Tonight, right off the bat, we want to talk about Messalina, uh, which is a subject that came out last week and that we promised to get to later. So we're getting to it now. Right.
1: We were talking about I, Claudius. Yes. And she's a fairly prominent character in that because she married into the, the Julian dynasty.
0: Yeah, she was Claudius's second wife, I believe. She was very young when she married him. She was about uh, 17. i going to try and remember what is fact and what is I, Claudius. One assumes he would have been much older in his 50s, I think, so probably quite smitten with her. She did have a lover with whom she conspired to kill him. Her plan was to marry her lover, and they were going to become, they were going to take over the kingdom, which is hard to see how that would have worked. But like I say, she was very young.
1: I mean, by the time she died, she was only, I want to say, in her mid to late 20s. I didn't even realize she was that old.
0: So the main reason that we talk about Messalina today, and particularly tonight, is that through literature she gained a a kind of a reputation for being an unrepentant slut which we love she's our people Um, (laughs) one
1: of one of history's great hoes
0: one of history's great hoes indeed and that is partly from a, a the way that they used to tell history was a lot of rumor mixed in with the facts um we're not concerned with history so much as with the uh, with Messalina as an icon of right. unrepentant sluttiness.
1: The story that's been told and, and what we get to do with that now. Because it's it's certain that at the very least it's wildly exaggerated, but that doesn't really matter <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Her
0: feats of sluttiness are like superhuman.
1: Yeah, there. It's like the labors of Hercules. If every time he like went to get a new labor, they were like, "You have to fuck a thousand chicks."
0: <laughs> she uh, supposedly would have competitions with famous Roman whores to see who could fuck the most men in a night, and she yeah, won. I believe.
1: I believe her record was twenty-five men in twenty-four hours. That's that's pretty impressive.
0: I feel yeah. like I I, I would have expected more. Well, I
1: think there was probably some sort of like rate limiting qualifier, like you have to get them (laughs) off.
0: Oh, no, yeah, that's the, that's the, um, that is the qualifier is that they have to come. She doesn't have to come, which is part of why I wanted to talk about her. I wanted to read the Roman poet Juvenal wrote a series of satirical poems about marriage and why it's bullshit. And he wrote one about Messalina, which I love. And I thought about translating it on the fly, but being on tape makes me nervous, so I'm not going to. I don't know who did this translation, though. It's just one I have saved on my computer. You ready for this?
1: Absolutely.
0: Look at our quasi-divinities. Think of what Claudius had to endure. As soon as the wife perceived her husband was sleeping, she would steal away from him, taking with her a single maid and actually bare to prefer a mat to her bed in the palace. The imperial harlot did not blush to don a hooded cloak in the dead of night. No, with a yellow wig concealing her raven locks, she made for a brothel, warm with the stench of a much-used bedspread, and entered an empty cell, her own. Undressing, she stood there with gilded nipples under the bogus sign of the she-wolf, displaying the womb which gave the lordly Britannicus birth she smilingly greeted all who entered and asked for her present. Then, when the brothel's owner allowed the girls to go home, she lingered as long as she could before closing her cell and sadly leaving still on fire with clitoris rigid. At last she returned, exhausted but not fulfilled by her men, and with greasy, grimy cheeks and foul from the smoke of the lamp, she carried back to the emperor's couch the smell of the whorehouse.
1: That's such a beautifully evocative poem. It really
0: is. And I I actually am going to look up what the Latin is for it, because the description of her vulva being still erect, I think, is...
1: Yeah, when I heard it before, it was that I think she was raw or swollen or sore. It's inflamed, I think, is... That's it. And I think, like such a big part of what's interesting about Messalina and other sort of core figures in the public imagination. She came into this life as the wife of the emperor without many life skills or like people who were her own or sort of a, you know, what did she have in her life? What could a, a 17 year old have that was just hers in a marriage to the Emperor of Rome?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. It's adhuc ardens rigidi tentigine vulve et lascata wiris nectum satiata recesit. So that would be with burning rigid. What is tentigine? this link is purple, I've looked it up before erect means uh, lecherous or erection as of the penis so with burning rigid erect vulva and tired of men and yet unsatisfied she withdrew god that's so good so I find that really interesting because it addresses like her physical arousal in a way that is, is is, it's so explicit and kind of not in the way that maybe we normally talk about a vulva. I mean, we do, but, you know, there are are certain ways uh, that we're accustomed to talking about desire and that is usually not one of them because there's, there's something aggressive about it.
1: Right. It implies, you know, agency on the part of, the person who has it mm-hmm. which is generally seems pretty unacceptable
0: normally when we are talking about when we're talking about women being aroused we describe them as being soft receptive
1: wet yeah yeah and this is really the opposite of that there's something really wonderfully uh sadly raunchy about it mm-hmm. you know i
0: mean one feels for her
1: <laughs> right absolutely Everyone knows that feeling of being fucked out and still not having gotten what you want. Absolutely.
0: You know, there's a part in uh, Foucault's Pendulum <laughs> where he goes to a condomble and uh, is watching the congregants there. Some of them are trying to be, the term in Brazilian voodoo is written, but, uh, you know, basically possessed by these spirits. And uh, there's this one woman who always comes to these gatherings, but never manages to get possessed and she really wants to. And he describes her as reminding him of someone struggling to reach orgasm.
1: Oh, that's great. I forgot about that.
0: And that, you know, that image of like, you just, you want to lose yourself so bad, but nothing is enough. So I also have a couple of quotations from a book called the telling of the act
1: uh, i would love to hear them if you want to share
0: i would love to share this is the telling of the act sexuality as narrative in 18th and 19th century france by p.m cryle so the first one is erotic narrative is not simply defeated by messalina of course it struggles to finish her off and makes narrative out of its sustained attempts to do so the challenge for male characters is to take the apparently insatiable female to the point where she will actually voice her own satisfaction and mark the end of the story by saying, enough. Men sometimes make so bold as to promise this outcome to themselves and to all who may be listening, thus constructing what we might call the span of the story and giving it a precise point of arrival. So what this quote is saying, I think, is that part of what's fascinating about Messalina is that often in discourse about heterosexual Congress, it's over when the man comes. Right. Right. But this is this, this woman defies their, uh, she's stealing their birthright
1: to say when it's over. She doesn't, doesn't work in that context until you have pleased her, which is either impossible or next to too bad, Mm -hmm. which fucking rules. Yeah.
0: And then this quote is from, he's talking about the, the archetype of Messalina and how it echoes through other stories, the 18th and 19th century French stories that are the actual focus of the book. Not only is this Messalina figure, uh, one in a different book that he was referencing, unconquered in her feminine resistance, she effectively, if not quite actively, conquers all the male Hercules who try their strength against her, leaving them damaged. The heroine of a later novel in 1889 succeeds even more dramatically in reducing the famous names of virility to a state of prostration or certainly would do so if she were ever to engage them in heroic combat in the plump arms of this enchantress the samsons and herculeses would soon become debilitated exhausted creatures pleading for mercy like pale-faced children <laughs>
1: God, that is so good. I thought you'd like that. I do. I do. That also reminds me of my favorite painting of Messalina by Peter Severin Kroyer, who I think is a German or or Swiss artist. And he did this really incredible painting of her standing next to a marble plinth. And she's like, I hate to use this word, but she's thick. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, she's got sort of like a a broad set face and a double chin and a soft arm with a a serpent bangle on it. And this is something you see a lot in, like, antique narratives about famous prostitutes or sluts. Is that, I mean, you know, it's like the the origins of the word voluptuous. are are, Its original meaning is pleasurable. Mm Mm-hmm. There's something so fleshy along with the earthiness of women like this.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's interesting because we were talking about this earlier this week about the meaning of fat bodies in art and uh, the words that we use to describe them and the words that we don't use that, (laughs) like we were talking about, uh, delicate, I think.
1: Yeah, how when you use the word delicate it's a delicate almost body is
0: thin usually thin one
1: yeah when really in most
0: cases delicate things are very soft
1: yes you know a chick <laughs> is delicate
0: you know like a souffle yeah precisely i mean i i hate to use the word fluffy but like <laughs>
1: <laughs> i've been called worse
0: <laughs> i would never i know Ugh, of all the odious things
1: it's really bad um, it's
0: like it's the verbal equivalent of like one of those kind of sack-shaped
1: dresses with a big bow on it. Oh god! Fucking nom flashbacks. <laughs> Dreadful. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, I think.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but voluptuous is is a word that can go either way. I think, but when we are looking at a fat body in art as a symbol of excess uh it is usually in in a negative context you know it's like right i was looking earlier today for uh anti-capitalist art from the early 20th century and it's like so many like fat men in in suits representing yeah. imperial greed or whatever it's really odious
1: yeah that persists in cartooning yeah. to this day even some of my favorite political cartoonists like the only people with any skill engage in it regularly it's
0: surprising that they that more people have not come around to how fucked up that is
1: but well i think our our attitudes about it as a society have actually kind of worsened over time mm -hmm. rather than getting better so
0: yeah you know because it used to be even if rich people were fat at least it was like meant that they had access to resources. But now being fat is seen as a a personal moral failure. It's well, yes, that, but I was going to say like a lower class signifier.
1: Right. You know, in a lot of instances it will be used as proof that you're kind of too stupid to make the correct decisions for yourself. Mm -hmm. You must be deficient in some way. You know there are multiple instances that I read about, and i had I had to just stop reading about this because it was making me so upset,
0: yeah, why would you?
1: I don't <laughs> even know what it was you read, but I already know you shouldn't have been yeah, uh, it was about fat children being taken away from their parents, Jesus, and one exactly as you would expect a they never fucking wind up thinner Mm-mm. um, and b, it destroys their whole lives, yeah. And just like seeing the kinds of things that judges say and prosecutors say about cases like this are so horrifying. Basically at every level in our government and in our corporate culture, every part of American society, it's okay to be pretty much any level of hostile towards a fat person. Mm -hmm. Right. Because (laughs) the
0: idea is that they brought this on themselves.
1: Right. If they didn't want to be
0: treated like this, they would just
1: be thin. Right. Exactly. Which is a matter of willpower and discipline. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, of course, there's no telling these people that there's really no way to lose weight sustainably in the long term, that it's often pointless, you know, it doesn't correlate to health. Right.
0: Well, because if you could convince them of that, then they would have to admit that they are in fact powerless in that regard. And they're not actually. morally better than anyway um. <laughs> the point that i was gonna make before you had to go and make it sad uh, <laughs> it's all your fault yeah yeah uh it's not a meeting of the sad club it's a meeting of the slut club where we talk about voluptuousness in art like it's not necessarily negative the idea that I mean, excess is an inherently negative term, but that the fat body is a pleasurable body. You know, mm-hmm. like, Messalina should be fatter because she has so much more to do with her body. Yeah. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I do.
0: There should be more of her and she should be, like, full and soft and, and tactile
1: right like i'm not saying that thin people can't have good sex with each other i'm <laughs> um, you can say it <laughs> um but until you've experienced like making love to a fat person or being two fat people making love there's first of all there's this really incredible intimacy to it because you are wanting something that you're not supposed to want mutually and safely and, mm-hmm. you know, showing this part of yourself that without exception, you have been ridiculed and tormented for,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which of course is very hot. <laughs> and also just on a physical level, uh the fat body has more nerves. You, Your skin is literally more sensitive. That's very cool to me. Yeah, it's extremely cool. I'm trying to think there are other famous hoes from history who are often presented as plump in historical record, if not in modern interpretation.
0: I feel like I've never seen a skinny Cleopatra. I've never seen a real fat Cleopatra, but she's usually voluptuous.
1: Yeah, that's that's typically what I see, too. Um, I mean, that's
0: also there's Orientalism there, too. Sure. (laughs)
1: Um, these things intersect very much so there's also her name is escaping me right now but there's a famous Chinese courtesan of the the warring kingdoms period
0: oh is it the one where there's there's a like an emperor who has a fat wife and a skinny wife
1: yes that's exactly it Um, and and there's a
0: um, the Chinese idiom for there's no accounting for taste is like, well, you know, there's the fat one and the thin one. Right. And each one is good in their own way.
1: Yeah, that's precisely what I was thinking of.
0: Sorry to everybody who knows what we're talking about and cannot tell us. (laughs) We'll probably just post it on the discord. I was so pissed when I did you look on the discord and see the unit 731 thing? Um, no, I totally misremembered that scene. In my defense, I oh, haven't watched yeah, the no, movie. I did, see
1: that. I did see that.
0: It's very sad to me. But I think someone told it to me in that way. And that was how I, that was why I filed it. I'm blaming this other person. That,
1: <laughs> Yeah, pass along. Um, sure. I did, whoever described the, the scene as it occurs in the film, though, mm-hmm. did a wonderful job with that, that horrible sentence. Imagine slamming a frozen hot dog against the counter. Yep. Uh, as a comparison <laughs> to breaking an arm. Um, that A frozen been, arm. That has been frozen. Mm-hmm. Good lord. Man, the other the other famous ho that I was thinking of while I was reading about Messalina this week is Shamat, the temple priestess oh, who yeah. fucked Enkidu into civilization. Love her. Oh, she's so great. You know, she's a really central figure in the epic of Gilgamesh. She is the one who civilizes Enkidu and facilitates his friendship with Gilgamesh. And, and
0: she does that by fucking him all, all day and all night for a
1: week. <laughs> yep. Uh, in some records, it's two weeks. Hot damn. And there's like a break in between where she explains civilization to him and then they go back to fucking. Um, That's beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's so cool to have this, historical record where prostitution is seen as like an exemplary feature of civilization Mm -hmm. i don't know how many of our readers know but i used to be a dominatrix and it definitely would have been a lot easier and less horrific and unsafe if this was still how we ran things (laughs) you know it would be very nice to have a priesthood behind you (laughs)
0: If I can quote Foucault's Pendulum one more time, uh, the sacred feminine is always found in a brothel.
1: That is precisely where she belongs.
0: I feel like that's like an ideal job. I could could see myself having a very happy and prosperous life as a
1: holy prostitute in a temple. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's really the best of both worlds. It is. Not to say that, you know ancient Babylon had all its gender shit figured out or whatever. Yeah, no, I'm sure it was great for women over there. (laughs) (laughs) But this is a model that we no longer have. There's something really beautiful and liberating about it. You know,
0: I'm going to go off half cocked again and say, uh, I read something recently that I only slightly remember uh, about how the, the concept of the, religious prostitute in the ancient world is like one that is so so much shaped by our own attitudes towards ancient religions and towards sex work like that conceiving of this job as a priestess or as a prostitute like neither of those is really accurate right and i should go back and find that article before i talk about it more but yeah it's like I think maybe describing it in that way is a relic of being unable to contextualize non-procreative sex uh, other than as prostitution.
1: That seems likely. The theory I just made up just
0: now seems good, (laughs) right? It's
1: likely that it applies to some extent just because, we so often sort of have no frame of reference for what the average person was like when we mm-hmm. look back at history a great example that I always love to give is whenever someone brings up the it" Ridley Scott film, Gladiator mm-hmm. which is presented as this big Roman epic I've never seen that it's terrible and you would hate it <laughs> that sounds um, like fun yeah <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's not like a bad movie on its own merits, but as a depiction of Rome. Yeah. It so completely misses the entire point and, and sort of misconstrues the civilization. Can you imagine
0: how boring a realistic depiction of Rome would be? First of all, it would be incomprehensible. Like nobody would recognize it as Rome. Right. Uh, Second of all, it would all be Greek. (laughs) No, even if it was in English, uh, the idea of Rome that we as 21st century Americans live with is just, it's a completely independent thing. (laughs) Yeah. And it's important in its own way. Like it's a cultural icon. It's a, we have this shared understanding of it that we all can refer back to, you know, there's democracy and order. And, and even if you don't want to completely suck its dick like a lot of people do like it's still you know this symbol of like empire and chauvinism and right it's, it's, a, it's, do, it's an doing a lot has, of
1: work as a symbol <laughs> yeah and that's that's very much how the ridley scott movie approaches it you know it's very much all about defending democracy and freedom oh um, barf yeah it's awful are the um, are
0: the gladiators symbols
1: of democracy how does that work? So it's set during the reign of Commodus, okay, who was like, you know, like half of all emperors, a huge showboating piece of shit who no one liked. Mm-hmm. And the protagonist is a disgraced general who gets sold into slavery as a gladiator through a series of mishaps. And everyone <laughs> By a falls set of curious chances, <laughs> yeah. And everyone falls in love with him because he's really merciful. Mm. Um, that, and that
0: quality that the ancient Romans famously
1: loved. <laughs> yeah, there's a great history on Fire podcast about Roman attitudes toward the gladiatorial games and the ways yes. in which. Yes, I That's really, I, I really love that. It's a two parter. Um, the ways in which the games allowed the Roman people to see people. Confront death and basically give it the finger. And I what love they the love, secular
0: games. We have to talk about we we can talk about the secular games next episode. Have okay, so much okay. to say about it.
1: There, yeah, there's a ton to say about gladiatorial combat and the social order surrounding it. But anyway, long story short, they love fucking like gore and bloodshed and craziness. Mm-hmm. And the only way you were going to get popular is if you raped your opponent's corpse after you killed him (laughs) but this is all pretty far afield
0: okay so as far as like the hyper masculinity of the ancient world is it a more enjoyable movie than 300 because I enjoyed 300 I thought it
1: was called Zoo for a long time but (laughs) (laughs) I think that Gladiator is by any typical measure of like success as a piece of narrative fiction is cleaner and more digestible than 300 but i it's mean also that, really prim
0: mm-hmm. i mean 300 yeah, is 100. so excessive right it's
1: like it's, it's very stupid
0: that's frank miller right like yeah. he he just like gets a little boner about something and runs with it which a lot of is he an indie cartoonist i feel like he's on the indie side of mainstream uh or on the mainstream side of indie but like yeah. he's he's in an area of a previous generation of cartoonists that are men mostly who just like get really hung up on some shit that like they then decide whatever fluffs their boners is like some universal truth about masculinity <laughs> and that like they have to spread this gospel. And that's not necessarily an attractive quality in a human being, but the ability to just obsessively bore into whatever idiosyncratic bullshit fascinates you in particular is really important quality for an artist to have. Yeah, And I, and, I love and- that for him. And it's fun to watch, even if I don't share his particular predilections that is why i
1: would say that 300 is the better movie
0: um like the weirder movie is always more fun than the yeah. one that tries to stick to the middle of the road right
1: you know or at least like, to
0: be broadly appealing
1: like there's there's plenty that you could point out as being dramatically or visually wrong with nightbreed but at the end of the day It's so much better than some slick shit like Avatar could ever be. I haven't seen Avatar, but absolutely. It's, I mean, it's just, you said it, and I won't repeat it. It's just a matter of finding something you're obsessed with and drilling into it. I guess I did repeat it. I'm sorry for breaking that promise to you.
0: (laughs) I feel so betrayed. I mean, this is, this is. Part of what makes the Rocky Horror Picture yeah. Show such a fascinating movie to me—I uh, mentioned this on—it's Tim Curry's
1: seventy-fifth birthday. Happy birthday, Tim! We love happy you. Happy birthday,
0: Tim! We love you.
1: If you're listening, I hope we're we'll listening. More.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Just to just to have it written on your dance card, I feel like. <laughs> Also, I I haven't seen a recent picture of Tim Curry, but I bet he's still sexy.
1: He really is. He's kind of Orson Welles in his old age. That's that's good. Any stage of Orson Welles is sexy. So he's like big and fat and hairy. Okay. It's really good.
0: I'm into it. Yeah. So the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a film that I think is explicitly about obsessive desire and about how it can be alienating. You know, Frankenfurter (laughs) is, he's a mad scientist character, but essentially he's an artist. You know, he, as you move through the story, like his fantasies become more and more abject as you see them, like unable to align with reality. You know, the creature that he creates can't live up to his fantasy. And for that reason, it is, a tragedy and one that I personally find relatable. I think a lot of people do. And I think that it has this place in the collective consciousness as a trash cinema, like it's a um, cult classic or whatever.
1: It's really very well made. It's a brilliant movie in pretty much any way that you can care to consider it.
0: It's absolutely extraordinary. And it is wild to me that I that this movie could become a part of my life when I was still like a young teenager and impressionable. And like mm-hmm. I feel very lucky to yeah, have had that. Because that was one of my first experiences of like realizing that there are so many weird adults and so much yeah. weird life going on.
1: I mean, especially you know, like, growing I- up where we live.
0: Yeah, like, how many freakish children like us watched that, like, at, as I think that the intended audience of the film is supposed to, when Brad and Janet arrive at the at the party of the, the Transylvanians or whatever, they're like, oh, like this, <laughs> these are my people, right? Like, I want to go to this party. Mm-hmm. This is like, you feel like that's kind of where you belong. It's like Nightbreed in that way.
1: Right, it's a movie about this- finding a home.
0: Yeah, and that there's like this uh, secret other world of like freaks gathering
1: together that that you don't have to mangle yourself into a shape that can exist in the outside world.
0: And you discover that you have been a part of them all along. Like that's that's what happens to Brad and Janet is that they realize their true freakishness, and then they're just left as the Castle flies away. Like, yeah. that's the tragedy of them is that then they have to deal with having seen their true selves. Most men run away screaming.
1: <laughs> I feel like, I mean, there's a pretty obvious line from like Messalina's hypersexuality to the way that the Rocky Horror Picture show functioned as a sexual awakening for so many people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And portrayed this like extremely horny, weird outsider, sexual world. I think that stories like that are so important to me because I was so alone with those things when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And even before I could come out to myself, they were really, really, really magnetic to me. You know, I would read obsessively about temple prostitution and i watched rocky horror and related films like you know bram stoker's dracula is another freaky sex film that i love but i mean maybe it's not a world shattering point but just knowing that these people have always existed, that they still exist in the time that you were on the earth is so liberating and fills people, I think, with such an important yearning.
0: I mean, this is what one of the reasons that art is important, is that it is a voice in the dark that lets other people know that you're there.
1: Right. It's throwing your heart out onto the street and seeing who picks it up.
0: Yeah, you know the uh, Ray Bradbury story, The Foghorn? Yeah, I do. I'm going to look up the quote from it that I like very much. Okay. So, The Foghorn is a story about a lighthouse keeper, and uh, there's this sea monster that is in love with the foghorn (laughs) because it's the last creature of its kind. And the lighthouse keeper explains to the narrator about why the foghorn was constructed. And he says, one day, many years ago, a man walked along and stood in the sound of the ocean on a cold sunless shore and said, we need a voice to call across the water to warn ships. I'll make one. I'll make a voice like all of time and all of the fog that ever was. I'll make a voice that is like an empty bed beside you all night long and like an empty house when you open the door, and like trees in autumn with no leaves, a sound like the birds flying south, crying, and a sound like November wind and the sea on the hard, cold shore. I'll make a sound that's so alone that no one can miss it, that whoever hears it will weep in their souls, and hearths will seem warmer, and being inside will seem better to I who hear it in the distant towns. I'll make me a sound and an apparatus, and they'll call it the foghorn, and whoever hears it will know the sadness of eternity and the briefness of life.
1: God. That got me.
0: So that's what you gotta do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ray Bradbury gets it, man. I love Ray Bradbury. I think a lot about the um, the way that he writes about the way that children experience summer—oh, god! Which I think is is such a like heartbreaking, bittersweet thing to look back on as an adult. Do you want to do some questions?
0: Yeah, I feel like we better do some questions. Did we get Otherwise, any on Twitter? I think we got a couple on Discord.
1: Yeah, we have a couple on Discord and a we have one on Twitter. Okay, what's the one on Twitter? All right, this one comes from Sixy Stick. What do you think about sensitivity reading?
0: Uh, I don't think I have any opinion on sensitivity reading. Seems like a good idea.
1: Yeah. I think that in theory, it makes sense that you would want someone with a perspective relevant to what you're writing about to sort of watch over your shoulder and, and, you know, help you not make a, an oopsie. (laughs) Um, It's one of
0: those things that, it's one of those jobs that one wishes one could have one's friends do. Yeah. Like ideally if you are being insensitive and in this context, sensitivity means, uh, you know, like not being racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic or all the other phobics that one doesn't want to be being sensitive to those kinds of oppressions that you yourself don't experience when you write about them, you know, and ideally if you are compelled to write about those things, then maybe at least, you know, somebody you have like some kind of emotional stake in it. Right. (laughs) Where you could be like, look, is this weird how I said this? Like, I feel like I've said that to friends.
1: Yeah. We've said that to each other multiple times.
0: Yeah.
1: I'll often bring something I've written to someone and I I don't like to, you know, impose or, make someone speak for their entire demographic but every once in a while i think it's it's not inappropriate
0: i mean that's why i talked to you about it because like really just as long as i know that it lands for you then i'm fine like i don't need every person to get it but between the two of us i think we cover everything that i that
1: really matters
0: yeah. I stopped because we're both white.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, fair.
0: <laughs> so not um, everything that really matters. But like, you know, for example, when I I wrote the story about being fat
1: shamed by Rafe Fine. <laughs> right, yeah, I remember that. That's an extremely hot story. I think about that often.
0: I agree. And like I have definitely been I don't know if the word is fat shamed because I've never really been fat, but like I've definitely had weird comments made about my weight by men but i when i wrote it i was like okay this is hot to me what do you think about this is this too far and you were like no not too far very
1: good yeah
0: so i was like all right between the two of us we have this one covered
1: yeah i think as regards the profession itself it really depends on who's doing it you know like i'm sure that there are both wonderfully skilled and incompetent or grifting sensitivity readers um i've certainly seen a handful of like well-off white queers who dip a hand into it as a sideline and that's very uninteresting to me i wouldn't want anything to do with that but you know i'm gonna have as a
0: marginalized person can get less marginalized people to pay you just for uh for your own experiences It seems there are worse ways to make money. That's
1: very true. I don't know. We don't know. We don't really have any perspective on this question. It's being done in-house for my, my novel Manhunt and on a personal creative level, I'm a little nervous about it because I'll have to reckon with someone else's sort of opinion and take on, on what I've written. But I don't object to it and I think it's a good idea that will probably make the book better. You know, I'm not interested in offending no one, but I am interested in not perpetuating shitty, hateful tropes and stereotypes for no reason. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Yeah. You want to make sure you're hurting the right people. (laughs) Exactly. Next question. Sure. Okay. I've got a discord question what is your favorite garment of clothing you own and why this is from dupe?
1: Thanks dupe. I would say I have two, two uh, articles of clothing that I feel really emotionally connected to. One is an ex's wedding dress. um, And They were the only ex I've had that I could share clothes with because we were fairly comparable sizes, which was very special to me. And they have since transitioned. So it's like this relic of their old life. And we're still very close. We're really good friends. So I love to, I love to have it and I love to wear it. It makes me feel really close to them. What does it look like? um it has a long black skirt it has some sort of scroll work on it and the arms are sheer on top and then black under the uh black on the bottom it's a really beautiful dress and it has like a a sheer panel over my cleavage which i'm also into
0: yeah but it's not that gown that you wore when we did karaoke at your house that time no that was a different long black semi sheer dress. yes
1: that was like a a floor-length lace dress that i own. yeah
0: i want to see you in all your gowns
1: i i think that i can make that happen hell yeah um i have a really great like red and black opera gown that i don't think you've seen
0: oh fuck yeah Um, you look good in red you don't wear it very much but i like it on you
1: yeah i think it it makes my eyes really pop Mm mm-hmm it's, um, it's
0: dramatic because you're so pale.
1: Right. And I think the the other article of clothing that I'm really emotionally attached to is that like pumpkin and autumn <laughs> leaf sweater that you gave me that I wear all the time. Mhm. Just uh you know, it makes me feel like you're close and it's been really good to have that during the pandemic. It's so cute on you.
0: Every time I see you wearing it on video chat, I'm like, "Oh.
1: It's also really
0: comfortable. (laughs) It's just, it's like, uh, it's a black cardigan that has, it's, you know, like the kind that like your third grade teacher would wear maybe. That's exactly it. (laughs) I think it's got like some pumpkins and autumn leaves and maybe like a wagon or something. Yeah. So it's it's black and
1: orange. Verge of Halloween autumn sweater.
0: On the verge of Halloween. We <laughs> it totally is that, and yeah, I got it at the church thrift store that I go to all the time i I love buying you thrift store clothes I it's, love it when you do. It's a real honor. I love picking out your clothes. you know
1: that I know it's it's great for me. I'm glad it works for both of us,
0: me too. My favorite items of clothing that I own, so when I was uh 18. Yeah, I was 18. Um, I was an exchange student in Japan for a little while. And uh, my host family gave me a yukata, which is a, like a, a summertime kimono that is cotton. And usually there, this one is um, indigo and white. And <laughs> it's really too small for me. It, I think they said, because my Japanese was never very good. And my host sister's English was better than my Japanese, but not great. But I think it belonged to my host mother at some point. And they wanted to dress me up because I'm tall and red haired. And I looked funny to them in Japanese clothes, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they put it on me and they were all laughing about like how short the sleeves were and stuff. And I was like, this is so cool. It's so beautiful. And then they gave it to me as they were wont to do. <laughs> this is like, one of my lingering regrets about this experience is that I never got the hang of like, if I would tell them that I liked something, if I was too effusive, then they would just give it to me. Yeah, Because I, I, I think it's kind of a requirement. And I didn't, want to make them give me things because I still had a backpacking trip to do after I left them. (laughs) And also because I didn't just want to ransack their fucking house. But yeah, they gave me this yukata. And yeah, so it's very dark blue with hydrangea printed on it in white. And it is the most honestly that a white American can come by a kimono, I suppose. (laughs) Um, And it's really precious to me because It has sweet memories attached to it. And uh, because I have worn it so much through, like I I wore it when I was in labor with Frank and it fits him now much better than it fits me because he's (laughs) almost as tall as I am. Uh, It's, I think, a girl's pattern, not like a pattern that a boy would normally wear, but who gives a shit? Yeah. Anyway, I really cherish that. If I were going to choose like, one clothing item that I would save in a fire. It would be that.
1: That's a really beautiful yukata.
0: Thank you. That's I have a couple of other kimonos now,
1: but that's the most sentimental to me. Yeah. I really like that. Um, that pale one you have.
0: Oh, the one with the, like, it's like pale green with a kind of an ocean pattern on it.
1: Yeah. It has absolutely. like kind of swirling water along the hemp. Yeah. You look so good in colors along that, like aquamarine. Part of the Pantone spectrum.
0: Thank you. When we went to Maine, I wore it a lot because we did a lot mm-hmm. of lounging. That was really nice. I Gretchen and I last August we we took a cabin in Maine for two weeks.
1: Yeah, we uh, fled our <laughs> our pandemic imprisonment.
0: We had a lovely time. It was a long drive. We were like we went all the way up to the Canadian border almost, and. We got a little place right on the ocean that was a really good deal. Airbnb.
1: Yeah. We went it was kayaking oh, and man.
0: we watched a ton of movies. I got, we got a projector like Sean, my partner's a TV critic and he gets like, we get all these like promotional things in the mail. So some uh, TV subscription service sent us like a really nice projector, like a Bluetooth projector so I brought that, Gretchen brought a sheet, and we hung it up on the wall and watched movies really big almost every day.
1: Oh, that was so much fun. Yeah. And we got extremely drunk and chain-smoked a bunch.
0: Yeah, we did. And um, the house up the road had a an apple tree, and they put out like all these extra crummy apples. And I walked up and collected them and made a really good pie.
1: Oh, that was such a good pie. You also... Oh, I, I made think sea salt. Yeah, (laughs)
0: because we didn't have any salt. And I was like, but we're at the ocean.
1: That's that's like, we're so similar in so many ways. But I feel that that's a great point to identify how we approach solving a problem differently. Because I 100% (laughs) would have like, either had no salt or gone to the store and bought salt. And you were like, I'll simply rest (laughs) salt from the ocean's grass.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's very me. I would rather make it than buy it.
1: You also sang The Impossible Dream so beautifully that I cried.
0: Oh, my God. I forgot about that. Aw, Gretchen.
1: That we had really such wonderful.
0: a nice vacation together.
1: Yeah, that was so good. I'm so glad we got to do that.
0: Me too. I love you, my brother.
1: I love you, my brother.
0: Uh, do you want to do one more question real quick here? Yeah,
1: let's do it. All right. What you got? This one comes from Bony Soups. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Sarah's Sarah. Up. Favorite totally indulgent, like, non-quotes, plot-moving, sex scene, or, sorry, scene, sex scenes or otherwise? Oh, gosh. I feel when like this is probably like, one that I should reflect on. I've got a few right off the top of my head. Okay, Let do it. A when it comes to, like, stuff that doesn't move the plot, that's really what I love most. This is a movie you showed to me, In the Realm of the Senses, which Oof. doesn't have a plot. It's just, like... <laughs> fucking and one couple being extremely obsessively in love with each other and enmeshed
0: the plot is that they get more and more gross until they die
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) so that's a great example of like what I find valuable in movies is just watching people in their lives scenes like that that I love I love the scene in The Devils where Father Barre goes to sort of What would the term be? It's so he goes to see sister Jean who's afflicted by possession and he is like medicinally raping her to get the devil out of her. Hmm. And it, you know, it, it serves no purpose. It doesn't change anything about the sort of religious conspiracy. The movie is built around, but it tells us a lot about who they are and it's just incredibly bittersweet to see her later disappointed when someone else comes in. <laughs> because, you know, that's, that's life. These things are never simple and you can form feelings that are not to your benefit. Obviously. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Sophia Coppola movie, Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. Very and,
0: self-indulgent movie.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In like the I best love- way. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a great scene that's like just fancy desserts being put out and then eaten. I love that scene. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're a fancy dessert. Thank you. That's my place. I'm struggling with plot moving because I don't I like the way that we talk about narrative now, like what is moving the plot and what is just there for fun. Yeah. The
1: fun is the plot, right? I think when people say plot, they mean like a recognizable narrative arc, like the hero's journey or something, Mm. which who gives a shit about that?
0: One of my favorite scenes in any movie ever that probably doesn't need to be there is Willow's song in The Wicker Man. Oh, man, that is so fucking hot. It's probably the sexiest scene in any movie that I have ever seen or i mean because they're not actually fucking in it but it's so highly erotic there's so much like just desire and taboo and you know from how he's all this like self-loathing and catholic guilt and all that kind of shit that you love to see he just like presses his face up against the wall she's on the other side of
1: she does her the little that, magic spell uh, the way that the he song is, so- is very good <laughs> wetty and disheveled, and she is so ice cold. She's just like, springing around, totally clean and composed.
0: Just like slapping the wall, slapping her ass. Mm -hmm. I Like, the scene didn't need to be in the movie, it's just there for the vibes. Yes. But the movie would not be one of my all-time favorite movies if it didn't have that scene in it.
1: Exactly. You know, it's like the the scene in Dracula where Dracula feeds a baby to his brides. <laughs> and it's like, he did. There's no reason for us to really see that. We, most people realize upon seeing Dracula that he is the bad guy, <coughs> um, but it rules. It's like mm-hmm. this whole inversion of procreative sex. Cause it comes right on the heels of Jonathan Harker being, Sexually assaulted by Dracula's brides, um, and it includes the scene where Vampire Queen Monica Bellucci rises out of the sheets, uh-huh. which and melts the crucifix he's wearing. Oh my god! That was such a like formative thing for me to see as like an eleven-year-old or however <laughs> old I was I saw it. God, that I mean was Bram so
0: Stoker's odd. Dracula is and is not an accurate adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Agreed.
0: And I feel like it gets the subtext, right?
1: Yes. And I think that in a lot of ways it does what a great adaptation should do. Which yes, is exactly. It the vibe. Yes.
0: You know, I've, It's something totally different from the book. You can't watch that movie and then be like, oh, I basically read the book. It's a totally different thing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But the one informs the other.
1: Yes. I think that they are both richer for the other existing. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Probably Dracula is a, is a rich topic of podcasting that we can save for another time. Also, are we done here? I feel like we've been going and going.
1: Yeah, I think we can wrap up here, but I would love to do an episode on Draculas.
0: Draculas,
1: two Draculas, four Draculas. (laughs) So thank you. You've been listening to Lament Configuration. You can follow us on, uh, where can they follow us,
0: Julia? (laughs) We have Twitter accounts that are great. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You're not using any other things. Shut up you can join our Discord. The invite code is lowercase n, lowercase d, seven, capital A, capital N, lowercase p, capital T, seven, seven, lowercase e.
1: I will also uh, paste that into the episode. (laughs) (laughs) No, go back and type it
0: out. (laughs) Prove that you're worthy. Uh,
1: Thank you for tuning in.